continuing in our sermon series of Journey to Jerusalem. And uh, for those of you that might be new, it's a study we're doing out of Luke, uh, the back half of the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus said he set his face to go to Jerusalem, meaning he's headed to the cross, but he has a lot to do in the meantime. And so he's training his disciples from chapter, <coughs> sorry, end of chapter 9 and to chapter around 17. And uh, he's going to explain to them the important things. So today is another important chunk of Scripture out of Luke chapter 14. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'll be looking uh, at starting at verse 25 when we get there. So uh, I've been here a couple of years now, and there's always a chance of me repeating myself. You know, stories, illustrations, that kind of stuff. And I have a feeling I've mentioned this opening before, but it fits really well. So if you're new, it's your first time to hear this. If you're not, it's a reminder. <clears throat> but if you're a, a student of history uh, and you know about world wars and uh, skirmishes and whatnot, you will know that there's two kinds of, of surrender as illustrated by World War I and World War II. One is a conditional surrender. And if you studied history about the conclusion of the First World War, I've been to the Palace of Versailles in France, and I've looked in the Hall of Mirrors, and in this palace, I don't have a photo of it, there was a treaty signed uh, to end the First World War. And it's, it's, that's partly true. Uh, There's lots of treaties actually signed by different countries with Germany to end the First World War, but it was, uh, it was negotiated. There's hundreds and hundreds of meetings with countries and various uh, entities to come up with a settlement that was eventually signed by Germany, who were reluctant to sign it, but they were, the Allies were going to threaten, if you don't sign it, we're just going to keep, keep fighting and you're going to be done with. And so they, they actually signed it. But it was under kind of duress, it was negotiated, if we, you know, you have to give up this, and you know. all. So they negotiated that treaty. The Second World War wasn't that way at all. There was no negotiations. It was, we're done, you're defeated. Um, and, and so on uh, May 7th, 1945, the German Third Reich signed an unconditional surrender at Reims in northeastern France. And on September 2, the Japanese signed their surrender aboard an American battleship, the Missouri, anchored in the Tokyo Harbor, surrounded by 250 Allied warships. They're saying, there's no negotiations. You've lost and uh, you have no right to make any conditions at this point. Raising a white flag is the idea of we're, we, we give up, <laughs> we surrender, no more fighting, uh, let us live, uh, let us pass through uh, the, the, the lines uh, safely, and we'll just call it quits. In Romans 5, uh, Paul tells us that before we were reconciled with God, we were his enemies. And we were, uh, in other words, we are at enmity with God. In other words, we were, it was a battle lines were drawn, and we were on the opposite side from God. Chapter 8, it says, the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. 
There is a spiritual battle that goes on in this world. We're not always aware of it, and maybe we are. Maybe you see the results of the sinful nature about this uh, secular culture trying to have its way in the hearts of people. So in today's passage, Jesus is setting out the terms of surrender. Uh, it's, it's not a negotiated surrender where we get to set out the conditions. I think a lot of people want to set out, they want to have a negotiated surrender with God. If I let you be Lord, uh, I still want to be able to do this and still want to be able to do that. And, and uh, I want to still be able to go and spin my weekends away. From, you know, it's like we, we want to get a deal with God. We want to say, okay, I like what you have to offer, but you know, I still want to have my stuff. And uh, Jesus is saying, this is not uh, a negotiation. (laughs) Either I'm Lord or I'm not. There isn't an in-between. Scottish writer and theologian, Pastor Andrew Murray, he calls this uh, not a negotiated or conditional or even uh, unconditional surrender. He calls this an absolute surrender, meaning... There's nothing that we hold back. Is that we turn everything over to God. We, we have no uh, rights. We have no uh, say. We just understand that it's the best thing for us to be completely and absolutely turned over our lives, our futures, our desires, everything into his hands. Uh, Murray describes this way. Absolute surrender depicts a complete an unreserved yielding to the Almighty God. It is a total show of submissiveness to God. This is the height of Christian commitment to God to serve him all the days of his or her life. A believer's sincerity is tested at the altar of absolute surrender to God. When we truly understand God's great love for us and the price he was willing to pay for our forgiveness, we can do nothing less than raise the white flag of our life Surrender. So Luke 14, verse 25, Jesus starts off. It describes the situation. It says, a large crowd was following Jesus. And he turned around and he said to them, and just uh, brace yourselves, because this is a, a, a very stark thing Jesus says. Verse 26, modern King James Version says it this way. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. The New Living Translation says it this way, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, otherwise you can't be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Well, this verse, it seems to be in stark contrast to his commands to love one another. You know, everything's about love. What's he doing with this hate stuff? It's a four-letter word stuck in the middle of this scripture. Why is he telling us to hate people? And said, well, he's not. Uh, When you read the Bible, there are certain ways of reading the Bible, and you have to take into account the cultural context of what uh, the, the audience he was speaking to, he was in a Jewish culture. He was in the Middle East, and they used these these um, these idioms of communication that we don't use today. Uh, what what he's saying is not that you must hate everyone else; is that you must love him more than everyone else. It's not a matter of hate; it's a matter of 
giving someone in particular preeminence or honor above everyone else. So a better translation would be this, and it comes actually from Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, what he's getting at is that when Christ is on the throne of our life, right in the city, uh, the center of who we are, all the other relationships are put in proper order. How many of you are into construction? Do you like to build things, big things, small things? There's, I worked in a lumberyard once as a teenager when I was in school, and I just got to love the smell of wood. I mean, all kinds of wood, the pine and the cedar and the aromatic types of woods that are out there. Well, when I lived on 240th Street, the deck that we had in the backyard was falling apart, rotting, and pretty much unusable. It was pretty tiny. Um, and so I decided I'm going to build me a deck, and it's going to be a nice deck. And I'm not actually a finished carpenter. I'm more like give me a chainsaw or a sledgehammer and I'm good. Uh, I did framing and stuff like that in the past, but, um, but I planned this thing out. It was, it was bigger, it was stronger, and I decided because I had no trees in the backyard of my, my place and the sun was on us all day long, I put two, two walls up that were kind of uh, just joined in the corner, and then I put some cross beams on the top to hold them together, put these slats, cut out the sunlight so we can... We actually turned it into like a, an extra room. We were outside so much in the summer. We put some electricity out there for lights to hang and, and a little bit of ghetto blaster music. Uh, the only thing that I forgot was um, the electrical breaker. Um, I thought it was turned off. Uh, but let's just say I had a shocking revelation uh, that it wasn't turned off. And I... T- I told my son, if I come back and I'm like dead, just roll me under the deck and board it up and that'll be okay. Verse 28 says, don't begin your project unless you first calculate the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it. I planned this thing for three months and I put it together in about two days. And I borrowed a nailer, a pin nailer, a uh, hammer drill and and my father-in-law, and I can say that that was the only time in my entire married life that I had an argument with my father-in-law. We reconciled, and he still likes me, I think. But <laughs> it says if you don't guess, you know, figure out the cost, figure out the the project. It says in verse twenty-nine. Otherwise, if, if you might not complete it, uh, you might run out of money, and everyone's going to laugh at you. They're going to say there's a person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. You don't want to have a half-finished project. And I've been, in, I've been in several homes, I'd have to say, not, not from this church, but previous churches where there was, like, the floors were down to the, the, the no carpet, no underlay. It's just like, when are you going to finish this? Well, I haven't got, or the walls were kind of like down to the studs for years. They're going, you got to finish this. You're driving your wife nuts. It says in Luke 14.31, a king is going to go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors and discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. 
If he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss the terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. You've got to count the cost. You've got to measure what's going to happen. Can you actually fulfill this? Is it worth going into the effort or not? And then he says, verse 33, you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own. A bit of a shock, and he's talking to a large crowd, and they're just scratching their head, and I'm not, not even sure if his disciples truly, fully understand what he's asking of them. They would learn along the way. This was still new to them. All these things that he's teaching them is like, what is he saying? Give up? And, 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 and later on in the scriptures, Peter comes in and says, Lord, we have given up everything. We've given up everything to follow you. What's in it for us? It's like, what's, what's going to be the result? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 34, and he says, Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. In Matthew 5, you remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of have the same stories and the same um, pattern and, and often they add certain other parts that others might leave out. So Matthew adds uh, in 5.13, If uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if it loses its savor, what will, what will be salted? And uh, he's talking about it's just not good for anything except throwing it on the ground and trampling it underfoot. In my research this week, it, it's, it, I learned that there was a certain kind of salt that was taken from the Dead Sea, um, the sea was also known as Lake Asphaltites um, because it included some bitumen material. It was kind of like oil-based stuff in with the salt, and they, they used that often. They said in the temple grounds to spread on the, on the ground so people wouldn't slip and fall. That was all it was good for. You couldn't use it to cook or flavor or preserve anything. It was just good for throwing on the ground and walking on. Jesus is saying, you know, if you're salt... Your good salt loses its flavor. What, what's the point of having it? You just got to throw it on the ground and tread on it underfoot. Probably what Jesus would have been alluding to. What's he getting at? Jesus is talking about giving up all and following him. Get, talking about taking up a cross, which is a symbol of death, and following him. We're talking about giving up everything we have to follow him. And now he's talking about being salt. He's saying, I, I, I'm designating you to make a difference in this world. I make a difference in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, in your home. We've got to play an active role in making our community better. Ridge Meadows should be better because Christians live here. We, we care about people. We, we show love and compassion for people. We are willing to sacrifice for the greater good, for the cause of Christ, for the less fortunate and the struggling and the hurting. Christians are to add value to society and to our communities and our schools. We should be missed when we're not here. This past year, our church has offered shelter to the homeless, provided respite to families during spring break, offered safe activities for teenagers in this town. We paid for people's rents, fixed cars, covered utility bills, the cost of medication, home repairs, prayed hard for hundreds of people in need. We are to be salt. We are to add flavor. We are to preserve the good parts of, of our community. And, we, and we're to make a difference. 
We're not here hiding inside of our church on Sundays to preserve ourselves and pat ourselves on the back as we huddle together. We come here to train and equip and encourage and inspire to prepare ourselves for going out into the community. This is where we regroup, we re-inspire, we challenge, and then we go out to be salt in the areas God has placed us. So the question I ask is, how do you actually lose your saltiness? I think when you come to Christ, you are designated as salty. You are supposed to be salty. But it says, what if the salt loses its flavor, its savor? And I was asking myself, how, what does this look like? How do we lose our saltiness? Well, I figure we lose our saltiness when we fit in with prevailing secular culture, which is more and more opposed to God. When we don't cringe when people mock about anything that is Christian. It's when we have angry outbursts on Facebook posts or put politics above kingdom matters. We begin losing our saltiness when we choose to gossip and criticize others behind their back, when we justify being overly harsh or angry with our own kids or others instead of choosing kindness and patience. It's when we make no difference, when we make no influence, when we make no impact whatsoever with those around us towards, towards godliness. We just kind of exist and don't make waves, and don't stand out, and don't draw attention. Losing our saltiness is when we adopt and support the world's ways, or the world's values, or the world's standards without question, or any sense of unease when it comes into conflict with the kingdom ways, and the kingdom values, and the kingdom standards. Today's culture that we're surrounded with wants to medicate our issues away. It wants us to spend all of our time shopping online, it wants us to zone out on Netflix or spend hours on our hobbies and then say we don't have any time left for God or to bless and feed our own soul spiritually. Losing our saltiness is when, we, when our unbelieving family expects you to, to get in line or to follow along to support ungodly attitudes or behaviors or actions and, and you say nothing just to avoid conflict or to keep the peace. You know how it is? Well, let's not get into that again. Let's just avoid all the controversial subjects. Let's just, let's, just, let's just get through this day, this time, this event. You stop and ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Would he stand up for what is right? Would he confront ungodly attitudes and behaviors? Sometimes we just fall back into old habits or go back to an old way of thinking, an old way of life, and we lose our saltiness. It's also when you look to other sources of how to find your identity, who you are. When you let other, other forces speak into you and try and dictate who you should be or what you should look like or who you should follow. Whether it's TikTok videos or celebrities or style magazines or fashion icons, instead of looking to Jesus, it's when we compromise who we are and lose our saltiness. That we're not really much worth much in the kingdom of God. I mean, we have great value as people, but in terms of usefulness, Jesus makes it quite clear that there's some that are really useful and others, they're just getting by, keeping their head down. Part of being a Christian is to follow in the steps of Jesus, who was misunderstood and ridiculed and rebuked, and people tried to intimidate him, silence him, isolate him, 
But all their attempts, if you remember, all their attempts ended in self-destruction, self-defeat, and self-humiliation. Everyone will one day stand before Jesus to give an account. So what is this uh, call to discipleship that Jesus is talking to? Turns around, talks to the crowds, tells them it's going to be a hard life, tells them that they have to give up everything if they want to follow him, tells them that they're going to make a difference in society. What is discipleship today? Unfortunately, there's a lot of evangelical churches, and we are one. We're trying to spread the gospel, the good news. Evangelical means the good news followers. We're trying to tell people about the love of Jesus. Well, too many churches have reduced being a disciple down to just saying a prayer or making a profession of faith or receiving baptism. After that, you kind of meander through life on your own, trying to figure things out as you go. Well, in the early church, when you look at what discipleship started out as, when people became Christians or wanted to be a follower of Christ, you kind of had to prove yourself. There was a three-year discipleship process involved. You had to go through a lot of, listen to a lot of sermons. You had to do a theological study. Uh, you had to kind of prove that you mean, uh, mean to follow Christ with all of your heart. It's not just a today, yes, tomorrow, no. You had to also renounce sinful practices and give, a, give a, up all of those things that, that tied you to the world's ways and the world's values. The disciple was one who was consistently growing in truth and in the fruit of the Holy Spirit as they pursued Jesus. Their discipleship also it was never done alone. It wasn't done in your home, in your closet. It was done in, in the community of faith. We disciple one another. A mature Christian would come alongside a, a new convert and would teach them and engage them with, with uh, how to learn the way of Jesus, how to live out their new belief in everyday life, how to learn the fundamental theological truth. We would come in as a new Christian, we pair you up with a seasoned Christian, and they would walk with you and help you to learn how to live a Christian life, how to honor Jesus. When Jesus said to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. That word observe, uh, I learned something this week. It's kind of nice. Observe is not just to recognize his commands, The word observe here means to protect, to guard, uh, to hold fast to, to carefully regard, to practice. It's like you got to hold on to these commands because they are your very life. What Christ wants you to know, uh, these were going to give you the eternal uh, life that he wants you to have, the abundant life that he's promised you. Hold on, protect, keep, hold fast to, and regard uh, these commands. So what he's saying uh, essentially is believing in Jesus is important, but it's more than that. We'll go to the next slide. One more. One more. There we go. Attending church regularly should be life-giving for you, but it's more than that. Studying the Bible is increasingly or incredibly rewarding, but discipleship is more than studying, more than attending, more than a believing. Two more slides. Yeah. So discipleship is becoming an apprentice to Jesus, learning to live as he did, learning to let the Spirit of God guide us and teach us, to speak to us, to empower us, 
And then we take what we learn and share it with others, new believers, and they in turn share it with others, new believers, until we become mature in the faith, until we understand the fullness of God. Today's passage, Jesus is reminding us that there is a cost to consider following him as a, as a true believer. But there's also a cost to not choosing to follow him. And there's a cost to turning our back on Jesus. The Bible describes many people, several people at least, that said no to Jesus. A lot of people start off well in their discipleship, in their following of Christ. They, they come to church, they come to worship, they attend a life group, maybe they're reading the Bible, but sometimes they just get distracted. They just don't have any more time after a while. They, they, they get involved in other things that take them away from, from growing. They're, they're not really, um, they're kind of coasting in their relationship with God. In the scriptures, it talks about a guy named Alexander and Hymenaeus uh, in the First Timothy and 2 Timothy 4, talks about they started well. Actually, Alexander was the guy that was uh, in Ephesus when there was a riot, when Paul was there preaching, talking about the way uh, of salvation. A riot ensued because this was the city uh, with the largest temple in the world to, to Diana, Diana of the Ephesians, you know, and, and lots of metal workers and, uh, that made little figurines of Diana. We worship Diana. Look at the temple. You can't go anywhere without seeing this temple in Ephesus. Well, a riot ensued because Paul was preaching something other than Diana. And they were so, they were so uh, incensed that this huge crowd gathered. They pushed everyone into the amphitheater area. And uh, Alexander was actually pushed forward to kind of represent the Christian viewpoint because they didn't want Paul himself to go into this uh, amphitheater. And, um, but later it says in 2 Timothy, this same Alexander became um, antagonistic to Paul. In fact, Paul says to Timothy, watch out for Alexander. He did me great harm. He said, I had to deliver him over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. It says, the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. Sometimes people start off well in their Christian walk. They get distracted. They turn and they look back to what they've left. It entices them. And they fall back into the same old lifestyle, the same old thinking, the same old friends, everything else. And there's nothing about them that looks salty anymore. In fact, they are not only uh, unsalted, they are antagonistic. They start to criticize the church and them hypocrites over there, them ne'er-do-wells over there, those, those guys that don't know what they're doing. The rich young ruler was asked to come follow Jesus and he said, eh, I'd have to leave too much. And he went away sad. The religious rulers decided to hold on to the traditions and religious rules rather than surrendering to Jesus as Lord. The disciple Judas decided that personal gain was more important than following Jesus. There's a cost to our soul, to our spirit, to our heart, to our future when we reject Jesus, when we turn our back on him. The cost of turning our back on the one who holds the keys to heaven is serious. We're turning our backs to the one who established the moral order, who set the laws of human nature in place, who defines truth and love and grace and hope. The cost of living life on our own terms, defining our own reality, seeing ourselves as our own God, pursuing society's expectations and standards rather than Christ's, well, the consequences can be severe. You could live a life really devoid of true value and lasting purpose. 
We can live a life that is shattered with broken relationships and broken marriages when we try it on our own. We have a life filled with regrets and disappointments, or we just roll the dice hoping for a lucky break in our career or business. Now, all the while, Jesus says to us, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world or forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The stakes are high. And Jesus is saying, if you really want to follow me, if you really want to be my disciple, you want to be my apprentice, you're going to have to let go of everything else because it's just going to hinder you. It's going to stop you from fulfilling my call in your life. Count the cost. If we invest in society's expectations, we get society's returns. If we invest in kingdom, we will reap eternal rewards. So Jesus actually speaks a couple of parables in Matthew 13. He talks about a man who he stumbles upon this treasure in a field. He doesn't own the field. He's going, oh, no. Like, this is an amazing treasure. i got to have this treasure. But he can't just rip off the treasure and steal it. So he, he sells everything he owns, everything he has, and he buys that field because he knows he's going to get back so much more. Another merchant who sells jewelry comes across this pearl that's a, he's never seen anything like it before. So he says, I sells everything else just to buy that one pearl of great price because he knows that that is going to be a windfall for him. That's what counting the cost is. It's not just what you have to give up, but what you're going to gain in return. We get back so much more than what we ever give up. Count the cost, yeah, what you got to put out, what the time, the relationships, the future, putting it into Jesus' hand. But it's like all of a sudden everything comes back overwhelmingly so in the kingdom of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. and Relationships are healed and future is solid and purpose of life is there. You didn't expect so much to be given back. The presence of God in your life. It's all of a sudden like, wow, how how did I even doubt this? A true apprentice, a true disciple, a true follower will also take the initiative, will, di- will dis- discipline themselves, will train their mind and how they think, how they respond to others, how they use their time and resources. Martin Luther, like Abraham Lincoln, like William Wilberforce, like many thousands of others, took a stand when it counted and made a difference. They were salt in, a, in a, a wicked societies and societies that were corrupt, And they said, no more. I won't be a part of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during World War II. He saw the church, the state church in Germany, follow along with the Nazi regime. Not make waves. Let's just get along and everything will be okay. Well, after a while, they, they, they kept turning their blind eye so much to what the Nazis were doing that they lost their moral authority. They no longer could speak with any kind of sense of truth because they were complicit in what was happening to society. But Bonhoeffer says, no more. I can't. I can't follow this route. I have to stand up. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in his book, he talks about cheap grace. This is kind of what I was starting out with about the evangelical churches. He says, cheap grace is preaching the forgiveness without requiring repentance or baptism, without church discipline or communion, without confession. 
or absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Grace uh, living and in, 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 uh, Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He's saying that we're, we think that because Jesus went to the cross and paid the sin, price for our sins, we can do whatever we want. It doesn't have to cost any more. He paid the price. We can live like we want, do what we want, say what we want, and it doesn't matter. Bonhoeffer goes on and he says, Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what God, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. We can't cheapen God's grace and lose our salt and think our soul is just fine. A soul that is safe with God, a soul that is fully committed to God, that is totally surrendered to God, is going to be identified by the presence of God and the power of God. Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. In other words, we're not earning salvation, we count the cost, we work hard for the Lord, knowing what it costs him for our salvation. But he provides salvation through faith by his grace. Willard goes on to say, salvation is not an event, it is a life. It's not just forgiveness and a ticket to heaven. It's an interactive life with God participating now in what Jesus is doing on earth. Count the cost, Jesus is saying but it's well worth every penny. Let's pray. Father God, you were helping your disciples to see that following you was not a hobby. It wasn't um, a side interest. Following you meant their entire life. It meant uh, giving up everything that didn't belong in their heart and in their mind so that you could fill their heart and their mind with your presence, your spirit, your truth, your ways, and that we would be able to exemplify a life of power, an abundant life that has full of meaning, that we can make a difference in our own neighborhoods and families. Father God, may we today recommit to being absolutely and completely surrendered to you so that you, in return, will bless us. And this church, and all that we're trying to accomplish with you in this city. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.